The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. I think we're missing something, that we don't have at least an equal reliance or attention to what we're feeling. And feeling is the, is the wellspring of intuition. It's not logical, it's not objective, it's not rational, but it's highly informative and useful. The key to understanding intuition is allowing and appreciating how the mind makes connections between things that objectively seemingly have no connection, but to the person generating those links, they come naturally. It's a wonderful chaos, random, messy and glorious. Solo or tandem? We work to find rest, fight to find peace, both head and the heart. We are here. We're going to be talking. This is our second bite at Bob. Well, Or better known by us as Bobby Deutsch. I think we're the only ones that might call him Bobby. We'll discuss that. I think he reminded us. I think maybe his mom used to call him Bobby. But we are going to talk about what is intuition. And Bob has a lot to say on that matter. And we're going to do that where, my dear friend? Obviously on a wonderful coast. Yes, we are. So, Bambos, we're here with Bobby Deutsch. Yeah, we are indeed. Bobby is like family in a weird way. Yeah, I, I mean, how agree. It's just in the meantime, it's we can bring him on and let him read his bedtime stories because that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, um, we do have one thing that's unique to Bobby's. We have the one finger rule with Bobby because he can talk. So we say, Bobby, give us give us another question. I B- Bobby is fascinating. And I tell you why, because when you hear him speak, you hear like degree after degree after degree. And 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 I had to nail him. You heard me asking the questions before we started. So I'm like, tell me what you've learned. Like, what's your education? So he's got two PhDs, but he doesn't like to talk about it. But he, he, he did those. <laughs> and he's done it in cognitive neuroscience and anthropology. I'm sure he's done other educations. He'll even say, I'm sure he's still learning. So these are just little things he's learned along the way. Um, He's also lived and studied primitive cultures. And he lives in a primitive culture too. (laughs) Yes, we discussed that. He's now in Napa Valley. He he, he left Los Angeles for Northern California. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to talk about that migration as well. In 1993, he founded a company called Brain Cells. And uh, and almost 30 years later, he continues to do speaking engagements, talking about everything about the brain. He loves leadership. We had our last show with him was on leadership because he's interviewed some incredible minds. 
And he discussed a lot of that on the show. So if you want to listen back to that episode, that's also available. Today, we're going to discuss intuition. Maybe we can ask Yasmin. If she can do some. Yeah. She can tell us. Sure. And we've done a show on intuition, right? Gut we did. Feeling. We did gut feeling versus intuition. And we had a really nice talk there. So it's another show if people want to go back and listen to. Um, and what was nice about that show is that there was a lot of participation um, where people were discussing where an intuition might be more felt in the body and it might be felt more in the head and how we distinguish that different feeling and what that what it's telling us, right? Yeah. So I think we'll discuss that with Bob as well today. Yeah, I'm curious. He's, he's like a storyteller, uh, like a, like an encyclopedia, but the only thing, you, you just ask the question and he gives you the answer. He gives you the answer. The only thing we have to make sure of is time, like I said, because he, he will give us a real answer. Um, without further ado, we're bringing you on, Bob. Nice to see you again. Hello, Bob. Bobby. Good. Something. Good afternoon. Good evening. I feel like I want to sing when I see you. There's just songs in the air when I see Bob. I know you don't want me to sing. I no. got it. No, no, actually, I don't mind. Oh, really? Yeah. Take it away, Andy. You are the sunshine of my life. Oh, God. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we here talking to intu about intuition with you specifically? Nice. Why get so specific, Bambos? That's incredible. <laughs> intuition... It brings up so many issues today, today in life, because today consciousness has been taken over by numbers, mm -hmm. you know, big data. Um, I have methods, I have routines, I have procedures, I have everything except when I walk in, I'm talking about many people, when I walk into my office in the morning, I leave my self, my S-E-L-F, outside my door. So I'm no longer me as a human being. I'm just a repository of mumbo jumbo. I think we're missing something that we don't have at least an equal reliance or attention to what we're feeling. And feeling is the, is the wellspring of intuition. Feeling is the wellspring of intuition. Of intuition. Beautiful. It feeds intuition. Okay. And there's two ways to talk about intuition. Uh, mm. Intuition, you could talk about the end result of an intuition process. Mm -hmm. you know? But to understand intuition, you have to understand the process, how a, how a person gets to that end point. And, and how a person gets to that end point is a very wacky affair. It's not logical. It's not objective. It's not rational. But it's highly informative and useful. And a lot of people are afraid of that because it's not linear. It's not objective. It's not rational. Uh, it's not numeric. So um, let me begin given how we started. October 18. 1969, there's a New Yorker magazine cover mm -hmm. uh, that I always keep near me. And it's a stream of consciousness. Here's an example of what I'm talking about in terms of feeling and making connections between your feelings. It starts off bark. Then it goes poodle dog. Then it goes Suzanne. 
Then it goes um, uh, 86th Street. Then it goes Region 77637. Then Butterfield 8. Okay, so let's stop there. So within a millisecond of those things running through a person's associative mind, right? They've mm. gone from Bach to a movie, Butterfield 8. And it, it's in a flash, right? Yeah. Um, well, and- by the way, Ronnie always asks me, what, why did you say, why did I come up with the subject or discussion that I just had? And then I normally take four steps back and then tell her what you just said. Because I saw that five minutes ago. And when I saw that, it made me think of this. And then because of that, I thought of that. And then after that, I re- and that, that's, this thought came to my mind. Yeah. yeah. A good example is from our last discussion where I was mentioning someone was saying to me, uh, Bob, you should write a, an article about policing. Mm. And I said, I don't know. I, I love to, but I don't know about policing, so I can't write an article. And when I ended that conversation, two things immediately came to my mind in, in sequence. One was Martha Stewart and one was Vaclav Havel. Mm-hmm. So how do you go from policing to Martha Stewart and Vaclav Havel? Okay. And the key to understanding intuition is um, allowing and appreciating uh, how the mind makes connections between things that objectively seemingly have no connection, but to the person generating those links, they come naturally. Would you call that free association? Or would you would you say that it's, ha- it's, it's further than that? Uh, because in my mind, right, just to rephrase. So when I am sitting there thinking, like you say, 20 thoughts are in my mind at any moment. And I notice if I'm constricted and try to control the thought, then all of a sudden they go nowhere. So it's almost, it's a meditation of now I see this and I see Martha Stewart and I see this connection. And I know when I see that connection, everyone else will think I'm insane. If I say, I see a connection here. And then I get, I, I, I would almost call it channel because I don't speak. I let the words speak through me because if I try to control them, they all, they all get contorted and it never feels right. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like I let them flow. And it, it, would that be similar to what you're describing or? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I would call that uh, trusting your unconscious. Oh, funny. It, it is. Yeah. I've always called it channeling because it just felt better. It just sounded like a better word, but you're right. Channeling has such loaded baggage to it. You're right. Way. Totally. You know? Yeah. So could you use that phrase again you just said? Because I'd like to remember that the rest of my life. Trusting it, your unconscious? Was that subconscious. what you Subconscious. Yeah. yeah. Trusting yeah. your unconscious. Yeah. Your unconscious. I, I, yeah. Also, I also stayed with that a little bit because sometimes Andy will encourage me to speak and not to think. And, and it's always a little bit like uh, jumping off a cliff because you don't know what's going to happen. That's a great image, you know? Um you're not going anywhere as a creative mind unless you get to the precipice and jump off. Yeah. You know, Bob, Who knows? Bob I'm really enjoying you. Isn't it the best? <laughs> I always want to say, I love you to Bob. Yeah. You know, that's what I always want to say. I love you, Bob. Like 
there's an avalanche of kindness which come which carries your words and yeah and i love your backdrop as a photographer i just want to photograph you yeah <laughs> so mm. talking about unconscious um i i have uh some quotes you know i like to use yes please so this is uh quincy jones yeah when composers get started on writing a piece of music uh, or a music for film or whatever the venue is, they spend the roughest part of it scraping away all the bullshit. Yeah. Right? Uh, the bullshit in their life that's now in their mind. Yes. <laughs> By that, I interpret that as, oh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, this and I know... I have these methods and these procedures and, and this dogmas and these disciplines. And it's like, oh, please, give me a break. You know? They scrape away all that stuff until there's nothing left but their self's truth. Mm. Okay? Because I don't think you can write or create anything without dealing right with your own truth. You have to find something to grab onto, to believe in, or else you can't create. You can't just say, oh, it, you know, whatever you want to put out, it's good enough. That's death. Yeah. Your senses won't react. They're just numb. You make a desperate escape to get down to your very essence of your unconscious which is rare, where I really think all the goodies come from. And I think that's absolutely true. I'll give I, you I, I slow down a little bit. Everything you're saying is like, so uh, it like, it has to seep in because it's so beautiful. Uh, it is beautiful. It's not, it's not that I'm saying it. It's a, the process that one can engage in is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I've always said to, I always use it in my coaching term, and I say it to Bambos. If I, if my shit is not clean, I can't go into a coaching session because it bleeds in. And then I'm not present. It's even if I've learned a lot of stuff, if I think I know anything before I interact with the individual, all of a sudden it's not genuine anymore because now I'm applying something that may not be relevant in the moment I'm with them. Right. So right. if you're, as, as you're now speaking towards the creativity, um, I, I always even say when it comes to writing, cause I have the two books down and I wanted to write the third book and I kept seeing that there's no flow here. There's no flow here. And I kept feeling like, well, I started to try to write and I noticed that it was not, it wasn't, it wasn't like the first two books that came very, very naturally. And, uh, and. Okay. But here, here's the complicate. Here's one complication. Okay. I think. Yeah. Philip Roth, the award-winning novelist. Yes. He has a concept. I didn't interview him, I, but I've seen a lot of interviews of his. Yeah. He has a concept which he calls anti-fluency. <laughs> right? He says when he's starting to write a new novel, if it's flowing and it's easy and it's coming, he knows it's crap. <laughs> right? Yeah. And unless it's a struggle. Um, it's in my little experience – Unless um, you can muster up enough courage, for me, it's really an issue of courage. 
to um, to go beyond what's top of mind, uh, to go beyond what you know, to discover something that you didn't know you know, or you didn't know you had inside you. Mm. And that's where all the greatness is. You know? I think I, I would agree. I guess the thing I'm noticing in myself are two qualities. I'm compelled to do it. So it's beyond me. It's, it's like a force of nature pulling me. That's yes. one quality that I've noticed that happens when it when it flows. And the second quality goes a lot to what you've just spoke to is that there is a complete uh, uh the challenge is not the writing itself, but digging into the depth of where the emotions are for me, especially when I write, where I can feel it's coming from an intense place. So I, so, so yeah. if it's, if those qualities both aren't there, then I could feel intense, but have no drive to do anything. Or I could have a drive, but no feeling like I'm really connected to the things I'm writing about. So I, I can identify with that for sure. Yeah, I call those two things seizure is the first. Yeah. Um, and it's like, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm really not into saying to people, well, oh, you should be into this topic because it's, it's very important. Yeah. Forget that. You know, um, live your life and be open to something that it's like an eagle comes puts its talons into you and whisks you away. Yeah. You know, that's what you want. You want that seizure. Yeah. Other than that, go, go about your life. You know, it's fine. It's a fine life. I thank you for the validation of that. I just live my life, do my shit. And then you're like on a random day, all of a sudden I come to you and say, Andy Bambus, I'm going to travel three months in America. Yeah. Like, like that's what, that's what the talents are. So until that day comes or doesn't come, I'm just walking 25,000 steps a day in Amsterdam, having a great time. And then all of a sudden the hit hits and it's like, wow, this has to come out now. Intuition. Uh, interesting. Did you hear what Bombo said? Intuition. I, is, it, is that intuition? I don't, I can't necessarily say that's intuition. I would almost say it's, it's not that I think it has to happen. It's that I'm, I'm my, I, my whole system says that's going to happen almost. But how would you see that, Bob? Just feeling. Yeah, just feeling. Yeah. You know, you don't have to call it anything, you know? I it's see intuition. Like I associate intuition often in my own case with interactions with others. I see something happening and I say, oh, intuitively, I know this is going to end bad. Or intuitively, I see that this relationship has, or I'll tell Ronnie sometimes, baby, I don't know if you know, that's going to end in a divorce. And she says, like, how can you tell? And I'm like, baby, if you look at a sneer of when he speaks or she speaks of hatred and anger and resentment, that doesn't end, uh, that doesn't go away. <laughs> that's, uh, I can relate to that in the sense, um, when I was a very young boy, uh, maybe around nine, my uh, eight, because my uh, must have been around eight. Um, my parents had what they called a cousins club, right? Okay. So about once or twice a year, one of the cousins would have a little party at their house, and the rest of the year you don't see those relatives, you know. So they're at my house, and um, 
I'm eight years old, let's say. I'm, we had a little sunken living room, so there's two steps. And I'm sitting on the step in my pajamas, and I'm looking at all these people, some of which I could hear, some of which I couldn't hear because they're in the opposite side of the living room. And then eventually um, my mother put me to sleep, um, and I said to my mother, um, you know, um, X and Y, um, they're going to get a divorce. And I've never saw in all my life my mother so angry at me. Like, mm. you don't know what you're talking about. You shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> you know. And she really got angry. And my mother doesn't get angry at me, mm. especially when I was young. And then about a year later, she comes to me one day and she says, you're right. You were right. They filed for divorce. <laughs> and, this is, and, then she, and she says, who else is going to get divorced? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was in the 19, early 1960s or late. Yeah. yeah. It's the beginning of the 1960s. Wow. Um, and you don't, you don't necessarily write, but you just have a feeling. Yeah. And who knows where that feeling comes from? But it feels a little bit different than what you've expressed, because in a way, what you've expressed is like, I observe behaviors, which lead me to see an outcome. Yeah, okay, okay, but funny, I'm gonna say something that's really interesting that I, I'm curious, I like what you're saying, by the way, and Bob, so I reverse engineer what Bob is speaking about. So. It's almost like there's a lot of people, we talk about it a lot with leadership. They've been really successful in business. And then afterwards, they tell you everything they did to be successful, right? And, and the thing is, is that they make it as if it's a free recipe of everyone who does it this way is going to be successful. Now, in a weird way, yeah. Yeah. me talking about intuition is reverse engineering something that's so interconnected, like free association, a bit what Bob said. So I could say, yeah, he sneered. There was a micro expression and that, you know, and then and then it goes back to making it into a math equation, like what Bob said at the beginning. And it is a, it is a way to explain it. But if we're really honest, it's a lot deeper than just that. Yeah, that yeah. surface explanation is usually uh, inadequate. <laughs> yes, but people need that. They need that. Otherwise, they think, I remember there was a guy who told me that he thought he didn't trust me for the first year that we worked together because he said, Andy, I kept thinking that you were like a mind reader. And then everything you said happened. And then he kept said, I couldn't figure it out. And he said, and I, and I looked at him and I said, yeah, I can't figure out why you can't figure it out. <laughs> you know, it's so obvious to me. How come it's not obvious to you, right? That because, was because everyone's connections, um, emotional feeling connections, like policing Martha Stewart, Vaglag Havel. Someone would hear that and they would say, "What the hell is that?" Yeah. But to me, only to me, it was meaningful. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me give you two clues from the brain. Uh, first of all, in, in, in your introduction, you talked about me as, as being a student of the brain. I'm, I'm not a student of the brain. I'm a student of the mind. Mm. Different. The mind is much more mundane. You know, I'm, I was interested always in uh, so mundane, everyday life of people. How does, how does that work? It's like it mystifies me, right? Mm. How, how people feel, how people make attachments to things, 
how people decide on things. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty wacky affair. And we try to make it into logic. You know, mm. we, we go to school to get an MBA to make it into a logic or whatever we go to school for. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with logic. So we have a cover story about how the world works that's actually invalid. And if you, under, if you try to understand something about how the mind actually works, I've gotten two clues from that. One from a, a real, probably the best, or at least one of the very, very best, what you could truly call cognitive neuroscientist named Michael Gazaniga. Okay. This gentleman has spent his career studying people with split brains, mm. right? So we have two hemispheres, right and left, and in the middle they're connected through something called corpus callosum. And some people have their corpus callosum inactivated or surgically removed because it reduces their epileptic seizures, for yeah. example. Okay. So he's been studying people who have the right and left hemispheres separated. And he, he has found some truly amazing things about the mind and of course the brain. For, for example, so there's crossover. You know, if, if I see something in my uh, right eye and you cover my left eye, it goes to my left hemisphere and vice versa. That's just mm -hmm. the way the brain is structured. And language is in the left hemisphere. So you take a person with split brain and you show them a picture through their right eye. So their left hemisphere registers it. Um, um, I'm sorry, the opposite. Uh, you show them the left hem, uh, left, left eye. eye. Yeah, so the right hemisphere, which has no language, right? And you show them, let's say, a picture of a shovel. And you say, what is that? And they can't name it. And you can see that the frustration, in the, you know, that they know it, but they can't name it. It's, it's, it, it's a real production of uh, anxiety and frustration. Yeah. Um, but then... What they do is they start making up stories <laughs> um, because the brain, you could say, well, what is the brain? Okay. Uh, my answer, somewhat naively, but I think there's a gist to it that's real. Um, the brain is um, a producer of answers to the simple question, what's up? And it cannot not have an answer. Mm. You don't have an answer, you go catatonic. Because you don't know, you know, you're lost. Why what's up? And just because I'm curious, because if I was to answer the question, I would say it's sense making. So it's making... Yeah. Yeah. Right. But what's up makes me feel just just to help me distinguish when you say what's up, it makes me feel like what's up as if there's something that needs to uh, like there's something going on right now, as opposed to I'm only sense making. So what makes it what no, makes I mean, it you what's, say what's what's happening now 
that I need to explain, uh, understand, account for, justify, okay. so, I could, so I could live. <laughs> okay, know? yeah. So this whole idea, through a lot of different, very elegant, interesting little experiments with split brain patients, he's come up with what he calls um, an interpreter module in the brain. And the brain's incessant need to explain and understand, mm. even when it doesn't. Okay. And I think that's a very crucial idea about what the brain is and does. Yeah, I think that's beautifully stated. And I'd love to st st take that point for one minute is that even when it doesn't understand, it's still trying to explain what it understands. Yes, exactly. exactly. And so, and if you looked at scientific method as an as a as an approach, to some degree, is our incessant need to prove things to be true means it's really hard to see where the limitations lie. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, another clue to this, as far as I'm concerned, I was surprised when I ran into this uh, maybe about five years ago. The great comedian George Carlin. And genius. 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 Oh. But evidently, not only a genius in terms of his um, commentaries on culture and society. Yeah. Unbeknownst to himself, he's a neuroscientist. Yeah. Right? Oh, I hear it. I watched last week one of these the timeless spots where he discusses governments and how they take over and how you give up right after right after right. And when he speaks to it, you hear the free association going on of him connecting dots, which would, as you said early on, appear to be totally disconnected. But when you hear him speak it in this flowing fashion, you're like, oh, wow, it, it all makes sense. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So um, he, um, anyone, anyone in your audience could see this. It's on YouTube, and if you type in uh, George Carlin, Paley Center, P-A-L-E-Y, 2008, uh, one of those entries that come up is the one I'm going to talk about for a second. Okay, great. And in about two and a half minutes clip, he's, this, he's not being funny. Uh, he's trying to describe how he comes up with ideas. Yeah. And it was amazing. He says, okay, so you're going about your day. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, you're going about your day and you meet up with something. And you go, ooh. You know, I love that phrase, ooh. You know, the next book I want to write is just going to be called ooh. O-O-O-O-H explanation point. <laughs> right. Uh, and okay, he says that's that's your first recognition of something. Um, then you might write it down, a word or a phrase from that insight. That's your second recognition. <laughs> this is what he says. Uh, then you categorize it. That's your third recognition. Then you might enter it in your computer. Mm. That's your fourth recognition. And here's the key. By the time all this is happening, your brain has, of its own volition, already made 
networks and connections between similar thoughts and stories, mm. you're not doing it. Your brain is doing it. Yeah. I found a book on, on a 42nd Street in, in New York on, on an outdoor <clears throat> stall. I saw a book called Psycho-Cybernetics, and I bought it and read the first, I don't know how many chapters or pages of it. And essentially what it says is the brain is a goal-seeking mechanism that uh, if you put the inputs in, if you put into it what you would like to get out of it, you can let it work and, and you don't have to coax it or prod it. And that's what, what happens with all the information you have. And you see your files over and over. First of all, you, you, you see something, say, oh, that's interesting. I got to write that down. That's, that's, I can use that. You write that down. When you write, you think of it first. When you write it down, it's the second impression. When you see it later to sort it, that's the third impression. So you sort it. And when you've then entered into the computer, that's the fourth impression. By this time, the brain already has used it to network other parts of your brain that have similar thoughts, similar storage. Uh, and, and those things then, kind of go to another level they can they can you, you find things that don't seem congruous on the surface that have some relationship to each other that you can kind of make build a bridge by writing and so a lot of these things happen unknown to you that's why i'm always reading my files and going into the computer because i see these things again and again and they strike me and i say oh Wow, and I get excited about something. I say, that's great. I got it. Wait till I hear that. Wait till I hear that. This is the feeling I get is, I can't wait to tell him this. It's like, it's like a guy on the bench in the football team who says, coach, coach, put me in. These things sing to you. They call out. And, and then you get to write them. And then that's the real fun. And then you write for a while and a day or two or whatever you want. And you put it aside. And you don't look at it for another week. And you look at it then with fresh eyes. And, and it's just an, an amazingly joyful process to create from impressions that come in, you know, it's, uh, I, and I, and I don't know where that comes from, except the Irish say, you don't lick it off the rocks. So <laughs> I, I think my, I think my heritage, I think my, the, the people who came before me and my family gave me a lot of tools that, that are useful for me. That is so true. It is yeah. so amazingly true. And my little add to that, if it's valid, in my experience of myself, it is when you're working, particularly on something that's true to you, it's, it's an organic interest you have. You know, it's not like, oh, I have an assignment because I'm getting paid to do this or something, or I have homework, <laughs> you know. Uh, but if you're working on something that's an expression of your essence, the brain will do this more of its own volition. Mm. Uh, such that the way I say it to myself, thinking about the Beatles song, um, where does this stuff come from? Well, it came in through the bathroom window. You don't know. Yeah. You know? Uh, but once you hear the mind say that to yourself, and you go, oh, God. You know what's interesting as you speak? I spent half a year creating a software that was called a meaning space. And all I did was I threw a word down and then I, th and then I threw in, it was a very, it was an open platform, very open. I type in all the words I associated with that single word. And then I associated single words with other words. So they started. Yeah. So, they, so, and what I noticed speaking to what you're discussing right now was 
I was seeing that these associations that you're discussing is happening so quickly in the mind. I was saying, how could I create that as a platform where you experience the world through your sense making? It's so interesting. You're doing that and talking about it now. Yeah. Uh, About three, four years ago, I was in New York, but I, this is before coronavirus. I was, I was back in New York on business. I was in New York, I think for 11 days and 10 of those days were fully booked as far as work goes. And I knew that before going there. Mm. And so the one day I had completely free, I organized for myself. And I did two things that day. And it was one of the great days of my life. <laughs> At the Brooklyn Museum, there was a major exhibition about David Bowie. And I'm interested in David Bowie. I call him a, a mixologist. Yeah. You know? um, not a bartender, but he he plucks from anywhere and everywhere. He's like, he's like Sting in a way. Sting just plucks from the jazz musicians or from the the Middle Eastern music, you know. Yeah. S- yeah. Similar sure. quality. Yeah. yeah. And this is absolutely true. Um so I'm walking around this, uh, I think it was the first floor. It was a huge exhibition, uh, not only music, but of course, fashion, mm. and a million other things that uh, David Bowie was so incredibly interested and interesting in. Um, and they showed he had commissioned someone he knew to make him what David Bowie called a metaphor generator automated so that's what you're talking about yeah and don't forget what um because i started out by saying to understand intuition you have to understand how the mind makes emotional feeling connections yeah things okay by Uh, the way just to add to that Everything had an emotional gauge to it. So you were you were gauging each of the words you had as terms of the emotional connection to your original word. And then, of course, I had facilitating questions because sometimes we have emotions that come up associated with something, but we don't know what underlies them. And there's there's the creativity is in digging into what is the thing behind the thing. Because right. the thing behind the thing is actually where we actually start to dig into something much deeper in ourselves. So, we yeah, can, we can dig deeper. But the, the um, what we have to watch out for during that process is turn it into too logical. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Because sorry, if I could just touch on that for a, a moment, I was actually talking to this with Bambos the other day was that. The danger in making it clear is that once we start to storytell, we don't we're no longer creative because now we actually tell the story and we hold on to the story and make it real. And once we make that story real, creativity is gone. Okay, that's, I think, partly true. And I'm glad you bring that up. And I would definitely be shaking my head 100 percent agreeing with you if. I didn't have one experience in my life, which is one of the great experiences of my life, mm-hmm. which is uh, speaking with Norman Mailer. Uh, Norman Mailer might be the smartest person I ever talked to in terms of 
really understanding the mind of human beings. Mm. Norman Mailer is a novelist, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. You know, I, I have this concept called self story. Mm. And self story is not your biography, uh, not your diary, not the chronicle events of your life and all that stuff like that. It's um, a mythological version of that, mm. but that you believe. Yeah. yeah. And I was talking about that with mm. Mr. Mailer and, and he said, well, Bob, you're, you got something right there, but um, you have to remember, and this is the essence of fiction and the essence of fiction is truth. Okay. Fiction is a lie within a truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he said, what you're talking about, what you call self-story, he says to me, is something that is 100% valid for the person who believes it because they, they, they see their life could have, his word was, could have been that way. Yeah. Right? But it's not necessarily factually true. Nah. But factually true is the end of understanding. Because if you just put out facts, then you're asking people for a referendum. Yes or no. Yeah. There's no way to read into a fact. You just say yes or no. Yeah. Right? And, of course, the essence of communication, the essence of here's, – here's the outcome of that for me. The idea of something that's – Wholly, wholly true, but not factually valid. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a hard concept. And that is when we first talked or before we first talked, I was saying something, uh, you know, I don't understand all this talk about leadership. You hear people talk about leadership and they're giving you all kinds of things, decision making and, uh, Profits and all this stuff is like, you know, uh, it's like, no, 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 at least for me. Mm. Um, leadership is simply defined as one's ability to touch someone's soul. Period. Mm. Beautiful. Any other way you talk about leadership for me is invalid. Mm hmm. To touch somebody's soul, you have to put out your version of the world and your version of you in such a way that people can insinuate their version into your version. Yeah. And that's a tremendous skill. Very difficult. The best example of that, doing it beautifully, is Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen, to me, is... Um, a true witness. And that's a phenomenal word to mm -hmm. be a witness. To be a witness ha has a lot of responsibility. Mm. You have to be a good listener. Uh, you have to know how to put what you hear in, into certain perspectives. And most importantly, you have to give it back to others in a way that they can 
feel as if they've lived your experience. Bob, uh, what's what's the difference between observing and witnessing then? Because I always distinguish those. Uh, good question. Um, my immediate answer, now that you just asked it, is um, witnessing is you're already incorporating your own essence and being and self-story into the process, right? Observing is, um, so here's what I mean. Here's the best way I can answer your question, which is a very good question. Vaklag Havel. So when Vaklag Havel became president of Czechoslovakia, I think it was 1990 or thereabouts, um, he was invited to give a speech to a joint session of U.S. Congress. Very rare. Uh, I was in the State Department then, and I was um, privy to that event because I was doing something related to Havel and Czechoslovakia. And here's the way President then Havel began. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, what the world needs now more than anything else is less explanation and more understanding. And the difference between explanation and understanding is the difference between observing and witnessing. Okay. And, and he defined it, you know, um, explanation, he said, is, you uh, you stand outside of the experience and you look at it and uh, you observe it objectively. Um, and through successive approximation, you try to come to some conclusion about something versus understanding is living inside the experience. There's no objectivity to it. Right. And you have to this is the way he said it. And you experience it in its unfolding. That's the way he said. Mm. Feels and like he, he's pulling my brain and <laughs> he is. Um, this is this is a show to rewatch, uh, Bobby, really. It, there, there's so much. But actually, the essence is the same, but there's so much. Yeah, and what we're talking about really in all of this is um, the conflict or the tension or the fight mm. between people who want to make everything into objective, linear, rational data. Yeah, my wife. Uh, and, and people who are interested in, in living their subjectivity. Me. It's our relationship, Bob. Yeah. If you're going to counsel Ronnie and I on a relationship tip, given that we're totally different polar polarities. You don't need any relationship tips. <laughs> they, they, they're perfect. But it, I, I, I got the struggle. It's, a, it's the paradox holding two, as you said in the last show, when we talked about creativity and we talked about the, the 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 quintessential trait of creativity is to hold two apparently contrary ideas and not 
fall to either one of those ideas? Not, not. Well, I mean, uh, Bruce was said that best. Two, uh, 2012 South by Southwest speech he gave. Um, I was not there. I just saw it on video. Um, and he ended a little soliloquy about paradox. So, rumble, young musicians rumble. Open your ears and open your hearts. Don't take yourself too seriously. And take yourself as seriously as death itself. Don't worry. Worry your ass off. <laughs> Have ironclad confidence, but doubt. It keeps you awake and alert. Believe you are the baddest ass in town. And you suck. <laughs> It, uh, it keeps you honest. It keeps you honest. Be able to keep two completely contradictory ideas alive and well inside of your heart and head at all times. If it doesn't drive you crazy, it will make you strong. And stay hard. Stay hungry. And stay alive. And when you walk on stage tonight, to bring the noise, treat it like it's all we have. And then remember, it's only rock and roll. I think I may go out and catch a little black death metal. Thank you. Okay, so here's a funny little story. Uh, I once lived on Cape Cod and had friends, married couple, had a beautiful young girl, daughter, and they had a boat. And sometimes we used to go out in the boat and then to another little island and have a barbecue with a bunch of people. And um, I was interested in this little girl because she was, I forgot how old she was, but she was young, but she was incredibly articulate. Mm. So I'd much rather talk to her than talk to the adults. <laughs> and she sort of liked me because I, I, I enjoyed talking to young kids. So I said, why don't you sit down here and, and I have a question for you. So she brings up her little beach chair and I bring up my normal adult size beach chair. And I said to her, when you have two things in your head, two ideas in your head or two thoughts in your head, but they're completely the opposite, what do you do? And this is what she did. She takes her pail that she has to play in the sand with. She fills it with sand. She dumps it over, puts it down into the sand so that sand is still in the pail. And then she takes her right foot and she kicks the pail over. She'd say, and she says, I push one away. <laughs> nice. And I said, that's, that's, the way, that's what adults do. They don't want to deal with the tension of... yeah. The resolution or the um, the operation is about and the unresolvedness of it, right? Yeah. Right. But these kind of you know, if, if you say to me, and I'm not the world's you know expert on the brain, of course, but 
If you ask me, what are the two properties of mind that give human beings an advantage? Metaphor and paradox, period. End of story, nothing else. Mm -hmm. That's everything. Because with those two things, you could take yourself out of the given. They stretch your mind, you know? They're like, my idea of, oh, it's, let me start this way. Um, Umberto Eco. Uh, Professor Eco, so what, what, what really is metaphor? He says, well, metaphor comes from the derivation, uh, I think Greek, um, mm -hmm. meaning to transport. And he takes, uh, takes two things off the table. Let's say I have here a pen and an iPhone. He says, I know this, and I don't know what the hell this is. So I'm going to move what I don't know over, transport it over to what I know, and play a cognitive trick on myself and call this thing by this name. <laughs> he says, that's metaphor. You're in a meeting, and everyone says, oh, yes, okay, we're, we're, we've concluded to this point. It's about X. However... We're making an assumption there that every every person's perception of X is what you think sure. is and yours is. Yeah. <laughs> That's wrong. Sure. That's right. And if you took if, if, if you took a survey and found all those meanings, you know, and then tried to find one underlying common meaning. Mm. Right. That would be like a metaphor. So I was once doing um, a profile of, of a world leader. I won't name the leader, but I, I'm usually good at this. And I was struggling. I, I couldn't get what I would call what I call the person's core metaphor. OK. Right. So I went to someone who was a real expert about this person. And I said, I know everything politically about this person. Mm. I know everything historically about this person. I know because everything the U.S. government knows about this person, I know. Tell me something. It, it doesn't have to be relevant. Mm. Politics or anything. Yeah. What uniquely defines this person to people who know him very well? Mm -hmm. Right? So he told me a couple of things. One is um, he says he loves his grandchildren, which he does, but his true love in life is spiking a volleyball right at the net. There's nothing that makes him happier. Okay. Uh, I said, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That wasn't in any of my files, right? Because no one would write that down. No one would even note it as something important to observe. The second thing is when he gets out of his car, he moves over to the right. He puts his right foot down on the curb. He holds his hands in the car and he <clears throat> thrusts himself. He pushes himself out of the car. So anyone in front of the car who's there to help him or something, they're going to be knocked over. And when this gentleman told me those two things, I went, I got this guy's core metaphor, mm. which is, you take those two observations, 
and you bring them into one underlying thing. And my notion was his, his motive in life is to destabilize his immediate environment. That's what spiking a volleyball does. Mm-hmm. And that's when that's like expelling yourself out of a car, like a bombshell. Mm-hmm. And once I had that thought, I could explain all his political actions. Nice. And my important thought from that, at least to me, is creativity is not a matter of what you know. You can know a lot, but Google knows a lot. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, Encyclopedia Britannica, when I was a kid, that knew a lot. But creativity is not what you know. It's one's ability to pass what they know through the filter of their, what I call self-story or core metaphor. Mm. And, and that passing through actually changes, modifies, uh, transforms the data into something personal and new. And I, I love, for example, I... Um, during the last um, Academy Awards, when that Korean director won Best Picture for Parasite, he made a metaphor. He said, how'd you write that story? You know, He said, well, income inequality mm. is a horror story. Yeah. Or made it into a horror story. <laughs> I mean, yeah. really. But when he got the award, he mentioned something Martin Scorsese said which is a reflection, I think, of what I'm talking about. Mr. Scorsese said, the most creative is always the most personal. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, that's, that's a very uh, unusual way to think about creativity. So mm-hmm. there's, there's this whole subjective, emotionally based, feeling premised way of experiencing oneself in the world that is different from knowing or thinking you know things objectively, rationally, linear. And a lot of times the twain don't meet, you know? In one sense, I mean, there's a lot of complications, of course, here. But in one sense, you could say that's a factor in the extremism of America today, you know, between conservative and liberal. Yeah. But it plays itself out this idea of, you know, am I a person who's a who's a subjective feeling person versus am I a an objective logical linear information based numeric yeah. person. Those are like two different species of organisms. Yeah. And you would think it's clear the differences, but even like um Albert Einstein, we think of as the scientist in one sense, right? Yeah. Albert Einstein said in 1945, speaking at Princeton, again, he was talking about his process, not his discoveries. And he said, this is very close to a quote, but still a paraphrase. Logical thoughts or concepts, as they are spoken or written, uh, do not play any part in my mechanisms of thought. My ideas come 
through the intuition of my body. Mm. What? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And you brought up this this note, this duality in your introduction about mind and body. And talking about intuition, I, I have my own intuition now. And that is, um, I used to think the mind, that's, I mean, that's why I created my career the way I did. The mind is everything. Now, 30 years on, I say, well, maybe that's not completely true. Maybe the body is the issue. And what does that mean even? Mm. The world is very complex now. I think we're at a point in human evolution where creativity, intuition, metaphorical, paradoxical thinking is, is no longer a luxury. Mm. It's a necessity. And let me, let me end with that thought this way. I saw this in the New York, New York Times the other day. It was an article about um, the upcoming new web telescope that's going to replace the Hubble telescope. Mm-hmm. And the Hubble telescope to me was like, what is that? How could that be? How could that be created? It's just amazing. And this now is 17 times more powerful, the new Webb telescope. So one of the scientists working on the Webb says the following. As scientists, we also know that the universe reveals itself rarely through data that confirm to our models or theories. Right. Uh, that rather it is those data that lie outside our experiences and expectations that point us closer to a universal truth. And so just as we know we must seek to understand our data that are different from our preconceived notions to understand the cosmos better, we need to seek different viewpoints when we conceive and build missions, when we conceive and build relationships, And when we think about what this world is, wow, don't get stuck in your cocoon. Cast yourself out. That's where it it all happens. And of course, that, as I said the last time, uh, that's the story of Star Wars. (laughs) Thank you, Bobby. It was a pleasure being with you again. Same for me. You guys are great. Yeah. Good work. Enjoy. Bye. (laughs) Bye. It's a wonderful chaos. And we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos. Bob is a stallion. You you can't rein a stallion in. No. You know what I mean? You just need to let him run. Um, he said something that I really enjoyed that we didn't get into because we kind of shifted on, on to many topics. But we spoke uh, a few days ago about this scene of a truth that is an experience. And then I said, yeah, allow that to be true. And then tomorrow, another truth will come up. And then, and it's, it's so not holding on, not holding on to the story of that truth, but realizing that allow that story to be true. So you can integrate the emotion of it, but don't stay stuck in the idea that it's true because then all of a sudden tomorrow you'll have another idea. And it's through that evolution of whatever is true at that moment that you then get free emotionally. Yeah. I was kind of serious. Like this, this show specifically was a favorite for me. Beautiful. And and you know, normally I would never say that about an intellectual. Exactly. And 
I feel like we it would be nice to take a few things and break it down. Nice. There was a. I felt sometimes I had to go into a meditative state in my mind to sort of feel into the words because if you try to understand the words logically, you get lost just because it wasn't an intellectual thing he was explaining. It was a state of being, and mm -hmm. I think we even discussed that thing when I mentioned on a show uh, that we had was it yesterday's show when I said that I'm talking trust in, your trust in your experience. And I said, it's a state of being. And it's very much in alignment with what I was experiencing as Bob would explain that, oh, what does it feel like when I'm in that state of being? And it is a, a felt sense. So nice. you can try to explain it to someone, but if they haven't felt or had that experience, you're just speaking gibberish to them. I'm sure they've had it because on some level, we've all had those experiences, if we're able to channel it or utilize it or kind of find the flow in it is another thing. To what degree was it integrated? Yeah. 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 So thank you for being with us. See you next time, Bambos. On a wonderful chaos. It's a wonderful chaos.